pour ce qui est de la question du rapport de la femme et de l'homme, je suis absolument d'accord avec Schumann de Beauvoir. Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris. I'm Rachel Capelki-Dale. I'm Naf Kothitambarat. And I'm Chris Newens. This week on the pod, Naf is going to tell us what's been on her mind in the world of love. Then Chris is going to tell us about the tumultuous relationship, I'm only assuming, between <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. So Naf, kick us off. What's been on your mind this week in the world of love? So... True to my nature, I've chosen a love story about our relationship with inanimate objects. Let me explain. I want to ask, what is the, what is or are the things that you love so much that you cannot let someone critique it or criticize it? So the reason why I'm focusing on objects and not people is that like, so I'm taking out parents or, you know, like loved ones or things like that. But for example, um, a friend of the pod lent me a book once and she was like, I am lending this to you because I love it. I don't want your feedback on it. Basically, what you can tell me is you loved it too, or if you didn't like it, but I don't want to hear your critique of it. That's not, I love this so much. I don't want to hear your, I don't want to hear negative criticism of it. Um, and so I was wondering, yeah, like what are the, it could be bands, it could be books, uh, movies, but what is the thing that's just for you? I love this too much. I don't want to hear your honest feedback. You can say, I love it or, hmm, and give it back to me. And that's about it. Bright eyes. Yeah. Bright eyes. Yeah. That's uh, like, it's uh, so divisive. So emo. Uh, a friend of mine in college called it your crying music. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, come on, play me Lua. Like I, I am just, I, you're, you're either there with me or I want you out of the room, mm -hmm. but we're going to be smoking in the dark. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, Jesus, et cetera, by Wilco is another one uh -huh, that uh -huh. like is very dear to my heart. Yeah. Yep. yep. My, my my feeling is if somebody didn't like that thing that I really liked, then I would just be like, well, you're wrong. And that, that would be that would be OK with me. If, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I suppose if somebody who I'm, I'm very close to doesn't like a particular thing, then um, then that could be kind of like upsetting. They haven't appreciated. I mean, I, I guess this is. And I've been thinking about this a little bit recently, but I, um, in terms of food, actually, um, and there is a degree to which I see a kind of like a, a, a lack of appreciation in food as a bit of a moral failing. But it's a, um, yeah. um, but that's not, um, you know, I, I don't feel that food is assaulted by that. It's like <laughs> I feel I feel bad for the other person. Food on the wane, yeah, yeah. Um, Some of us don't have very strong senses of smell, and it affects how we taste food. And Rachel, of course, is not part of this population, but she wants to make sure that those voices are heard. <laughs> I am an ally. <laughs> not an ally. <laughs> to the non-smelling peoples of the world. <laughs> um, Sorry, peoples with non-spelling. <laughs> I mean, if, if people don't like a thing, which it is... It's unreasonable, I think, to expect people to to like all of the same things that I do. And I, but I don't think that's the question. Is there exactly. something that like is so that like that you 
don't want to be ruined for yourself by other people's criticism of it. Like you don't want to hear why it might be bad or, you know, failings with it. it. But they don't have to tell you about it. That's the key difference here. I kind of, I, I sort of like engaging people in conversations about these things. In oh, general. don't make it a mom value. <laughs> it's true. I just, I do. Like, I, I'm not, like... The you thing, are a contrarian. Because you know, <laughs> what can he say to it? <laughs> There's no answering that accusation. <laughs> I, I, I'm also aware that when you hear someone, like, say that something is bad, that it can change your mind on it because it's far easier to tear something down and point out the problems with it than it is to say that something is good. Can I ask you, though, is there something, and my answer might be no, but is there something that feels so close to you, though, that it's almost not even a thing to be critiqued? Do you see any, like, a book or a movie or a musician or whatever it is that just feels to you like it's almost like, yeah, this is mine. Almost like I discovered it, even though, of course, you know that's not true. Like your penis. Would would you be upset if people were, like, had thoughts that they wanted to share with you on how to improve would it? Would you prefer that those people keep <laughs> those thoughts to themselves? Would you be so, like, honestly? About inanimate objects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel it's like, you don't like it, do you? <laughs> okay, we found it. We, we found his thing. <laughs> okay, because I was asking, like, is there something that feels so close to you that it's almost like you own it? Well, so I like, and I don't want to get, I don't want to get political here, but like, I say, um, <laughs> freedom is so important Na- to me. National socialism. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot hear criticism. <laughs> Let's let him finish the sentence. That's a white middle class. Oh, no. I just said today, anytime somebody has a white middle, a white straight man says white straight man in a sentence, you need to disregard the entire sentence. And you've basically just done it. Okay. But say the sentence. I should have waited to the end, but say the sentence. As a a white middle class straight man, um, (laughs) the things that I loved growing up, I've basically seen, <laughs> no, honestly, like if I, you know, I've, I've seen them be like, I've been told that I'm sort of not allowed to like them anymore. Like that's just what? kind of quite a kind of, well, I mean, like, genuinely, I mean, I'm not saying that to like, yeah, uh, I really want to know. I really well, do want to know. Say kind of like, you know, I'm not, not allowed to like them, but say kind of like the book of like the books of like Ernest Hemingway, for example, like, which mm. I think when I first read them, I would have sort of like loved like wholeheartedly and like without kind of like noticing any of the kind of like the, the problems which surrounded them. And so, and then, you know, the, the narrative is, uh, you know, now you're not supposed to like Hemingway or you, you know, you have to do it with a certain amount of like appreciation for the problematic right. elements of him. But I would even go, you know, like further than that, that like, as I grew up, I loved the idea of like, you know, traveling and travel writing and that idea of you know quote unquote adventure um which again and that was huge for me growing up but like as i got older the idea of adventure as a thing you know i realized oh you know the the narrative changed and hey that's that's not okay to love that because it kind of like comes with a whole like bunch Mm. of problematic kind of um assumptions and then you know how you give your kid Ernest Hemingway. Well, no, okay. So, for example, I used to love when I was growing up. I mean, I loved, loved these books by uh, a guy called uh, Willard Price, and they were all called The Adventure Stories. Uh-huh. Um, and they were about um, a couple of like 
<laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, it was like a, 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 I think like a 13 year old kid and his 18 year old older brother who were both animal collectors and they went off around the world working for a, a, a New York zoo and uh, they would go to all of these various places and they yeah. would talk to the natives and uh, they'd go and like collect animals for the zoo. At least they were alive because when you began that, I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, they were definitely, they were definitely fighting the course uh, um, for the good cause of what, like... Zooing animals. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, like, it was also like, it belongs in a zoo. <laughs> How are they going to survive if it's not in a zoo? <laughs> but why is it so hard to capture? <laughs> <laughs> As I said, I, you know, I loved these books, and now kind of like looking at them, and I, I guess this is not—it's not uniquely something for oh. someone of, sorry to say it again, but the kind of white straight male phenomenon. But nevertheless, you do get, I think, more of these things. So, I think you know, growing up, I definitely saw a lot of the things which I really valorized in my childhood. Um, you know like questioned by society at large and for good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I got quite used to that idea of like the lack of preciousness within things um, or at least kind of like art that I, you know, really liked in a kind of like unthinking way. Yeah. But I don't know that that is particular to straight white middle-class men. I mean, like we were talking about friends earlier today Mm -hmm. and just like the various problems with it. And like, will I still rewatch it? Yeah, I will. Actually, Um, there are certain episodes I skip, but that's usually because Brad Pitt can't act comedically, at least. Um, (laughs) And uh, and things like that, rather than like skipping the more problematic ones. Um, But also, I don't know that I feel strongly enough about friends. Like, I, like I've definitely heard criticism of it that I agree with. And that makes, you know, it makes me think too, because when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking really about like, yeah, a book, what an object, as I was saying. But as I was making my own list to respond, one of the things that came up, and it does feel appropriate, was that I, I am fine with, like, I myself critique the United States all the fucking time, but there's something that really gets me when someone who knows nothing about the u.s has never been there is like oh and america fucking sucks immediately even though i'm like the least patriotic person ever i'm like uh fuck the fuck off you know what i mean like your country has also done really crazy shit and i think oh i'll get murderous if somebody does an american accent that's it but i think it's it's a little bit linked to what (laughs) you're saying chris yeah watch your back um about i think what i think what i don't like is i have no problem with things being discussed but it's when all the good parts are dismissed in light of one bad thing i think and let me be very clear what i'm i'm not saying of course like there's this thing that's so clearly hateful and you know like racist homophobic why can't we fucking enjoy the art direction sorry that people got lynched like it's not that right it's not but something like friends where there are really funny episodes we're not talking birth of a nation right exactly exactly (laughs) yeah um like something (laughs) which by the way there is no title card saying sorry somebody got lynched Right. They, they forgot that, that one. That would have been, they were, <laughs> we would have been talking about that a lot They more. forgot that part. <laughs> sorry, editing got a little bit crazy, a little bit out of hand. Uh, but yeah, but something like... Also, they weren't sorry. They were, oh my God, they were fucking not sorry at all. <laughs> oh, yeah, friends. I wish we could talk about the comedy of that as well as all the shit that's really terrible about it, right? Um, I think it's maybe 
God, is this another conversation about cancel culture? Is that what we've what I've wound us into? <laughs> oh my God. I'll tell you, I'll take us off of this. Is that page. the new Godwin's law that if anyone talks about any fucking thing in the 21st century, must go back to cancel culture right. and nuance? <laughs> we need more nuance as the podcast. Also, it just sounds like nuance. So uh, it's, uh, every time, every time, every time I write on my students' papers, nuance. Which uh, is a lot. Yeah. I think I think about you, Chris. I'm trying to brand it. <laughs> I, I write nuance TM. <laughs> so I, I I do want to wrap this up by saying that the one thing that I've actually realized in real life that I will actually say to people, don't tell me any bad stuff, is my books after they've been published. Oh yeah. I had a mutual uh, well your friend who uh, I quite like but don't know as well uh came came up to me and uh she's french and so the tone didn't come off exactly right and um, because she said i read your book and i said uh, oh <laughs> because also i have three books <laughs> and uh, so i assumed she meant my first novel ballerinas mm-hmm. and she goes uh if you don't mind i had some thoughts and <laughs> and i said well there's nothing i can do to change it now <laughs> And she said, no, the thoughts were about how much I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) And that was This Week in Love. And now it's time for the love story. Chris, who's in love this week? Um, This week, Rachel, it's Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah. That's um, hot. Um, <laughs> let me tell you. Okay, Paris Hilton. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you first, I don't know how this is going to go. We have got a lot of ground to cover here. We're talking some of the biggest ideas of the 20th century. We're talking some of the biggest players in the 20th century. But guess what? We're dealing with the three biggest minds of the 21st century. So I think, <laughs> I think we're ready. Guess who explained all of Derrida in five minutes to her students today? Did they understand it? No. Was it correct? Also, no. But did I do it? Yes, I did. <laughs> so with that in mind, Rachel has already uh, achieved the impossible today. I'm going to try and do the same thing. I'm not going to ask you any questions because I think, as I say, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Absolutely. So Jean-Paul Sartre. Simone de Beauvoir. I'm going to leap in by talking about Jean-Paul Sartre. Okay. Okay. Uh, he's born in 1905 in Paris. Uh, he's the only child, which I think says a lot. <laughs> comes into it later. Really sets a tone here. <laughs> uh, careful, the- careful. We have an only child. You might have forgotten she was here. <laughs> but that's why I want you my vocal support because I really do stand up for us monsters. Yes. Yes, we are only children of geniuses. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> His parents are both from um, the middle class. They're both from um, quite different parts of France. Um, his uh, dad, I believe, came from the Dordogne and his mum came from Alsace. So it had quite a strong kind of German influence. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre, he's, uh, he, he was a very smart kid, like incredibly smart. Um, reportedly very ugly. Like that's mm-hmm. sort of like self-described quite ugly. A lot of people talk to him about being very ugly. He, oh, shit, um, since childhood? Since childhood. Okay. Like, you know, maybe particularly in childhood, I would say. Okay. Um, he had a, um, a wandering eye, uh, like literally sort of like right. a, 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 a lazy eye. That's probably a, a more politically correct term for that now. We're not saying he's a womanizer. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> We're not also not saying that. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> 
because of his appearance here, he did get he got bullied. He he moved around a little bit. His dad actually died when he was very young, um, and when the dad was very young as well. His dad was only thirty two when he died. Damn. Um, and um. He ended up moving around the country a little bit with his mum. He lived in La Rochelle for a while where he got bullied in school, um, uh, basically because of his uh, physical appearance, um, because he was probably a smart aleck and all that kind of stuff. Right. It was everything in combination. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then they return to Paris where Jean-Paul Sartre goes to a, um, a, a very expensive private school in the 16th Arrondies. <laughs> where unbelievably less bullying happens. <laughs> um, now he goes on to study at the Normal Sup, uh, Normal Supérieure, like the the sort of like the top top university right. of France, uh, because he's for the humanities. Uh, for the humanities, for philosophy, would you believe it? <laughs> yeah, he uh, so he goes to study at Normal Sup uh, for the humanities, uh, in which he's clearly in one of the most elite schools in France, he is the absolute top of the class. Um, and he goes on to uh, take an exam called the Aggregation. Um, I don't know if you know about the Aggregation. Um, well, our listeners may not, so why don't you explain it for so, them? So, I mean, like, this is the sort of, like, the elite of the elite kind of exam which people in France take. Now, technically, it's supposed to qualify you to be a teacher yes. in, uh, in France to be able to teach effectively sixth form college mm -hmm. uh 12th grade <laughs> <laughs> and university right like to be a university professor as well uh yeah i, I guess so I, I what i heard was yeah it's like prepa and yeah. university right, right exactly yeah but nevertheless it's like the absolute kind of like top grade yes uh thing yeah. you can get and people who do the aggregation often go on to become you know not just teachers but um president and it's still really hard like oh, the aggregation yeah. is still one of the most competitive exams in france it's literally it literally translates as uh wheat from the chaff i think no <laughs> it translates <laughs> as aggregation now listeners, leave anything. listeners my whole head swiveled like i was in the fucking exorcist <laughs> You guys, if we're the three greatest minds in France, we might have some trouble. Well, <laughs> well France might have some trouble <laughs> for the three ones. Um, so it still goes on. It still goes on the aggregation. Uh, I had a look at some of the the questions for the more recent aggregation uh, philosophy Ooh. papers, um, and they are amazing. <gasps> um, so basically, the philosophy paper. Um, for, I think this was 2016. Sorry, American listeners, that means the philosophy test. Yeah, so the philosophy exam, the philosophy test, um, it begins with uh, you have seven hours to write this essay. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> seven hours, you're in an exam room for seven hours, then it's like, please turn over. And then the next page is about kind of like filling in your, you know, details whatever and then turn it over this. again and it says burn this page <laughs> i mean it might as well have done so you turn it over again and then the the ones that i saw i, I looked at two one of them just in the middle of the page just has being sensitive what um and then the other one was just in the middle of the page just had the use of principles <laughs> the use this of principles. fucking country <laughs> 
I can't bear it sometimes. <laughs> it's so French. <laughs> it's seven hours and you've got being sensitive that you've written that. And that's, well, people, people literally, they, they spend a year like deliberately preparing for these exams. Because the French need a year to become more sensitive. That's what they're learning. Empathy it takes that long. But the thing is, I feel like American students, like uh, like honestly, are trained to bullshit and be like, sensitivity is an important quality right. in a human being. Whereas the French are just like, when you consider Derrida's difference mm-hmm. in terms of sensitivity, what does it what does it mean? Sensitivity can only be defined in terms of right. insensitivity. Mm-hmm. So actually, I'm going to study insensitivity in terms of Heidegger and Schroding- Schrodinger. <laughs> I've failed. Ra- yeah. Rachel's almost the aggregational. So was, we just saw that in real time. <laughs> that's what happens <laughs> it's basically a big game of jeopardy but for nine hours <laughs> anyway so Sartre uh, took this paper after graduating from the Noir Soup um, he failed oh <gasps> yeah shut up I thought you were gonna say he like he responded yeah. with one word yeah Later, like in eight hours, all he came up with was like the perfect word. Well, because you hear these urban legends yeah. right, about people who like have the cleverest answer exactly. like, with the one word. He failed. He failed. But anyway, so um, we can talk about maybe why he failed in a bit. Okay. Anyway, okay. Like, sorry. Yeah. Um, so for now, because there are two people in this love story, obviously, we're going to go back to uh, Simone de Beauvoir. Okay, Simone. I don't know. Not obviously, especially when there's like a super intelligent man involved. (laughs) And a super intelligent woman. Could be anybody. (laughs) So Simone de Beauvoir, or to give her her full name, Simone Lucie Ernestine Marie Bertrand de Beauvoir. I want you to keep referring to her only by the... I want you to keep saying her full name. (laughs) C'est parfait. As we know, as as avid listeners of the pod will know, having a particule, the preposition de in your name means you're fancy. Having multiple first names also means you're fancy. This is the fanciest. Yeah. She was the fanciest, but I mean, still... A, a bourgeois family like not that actually sorry not I mean, you're right like to think that she's pretty fancy but like pretty solidly bourgeois rather than like landed gentry right. at least at the time that Simone de Beauvoir right. was born well it's also tricky because they they killed off a lot of nobles yeah <laughs> once upon a time it's hard to tell check our patreon for uh the list of the dead that <laughs> <French have> killed <laughs> So Simone was born in Paris. Sorry, we have to make a list of everybody the French have killed yeah. ever. <laughs> That's for our Patreon listeners. You're welcome. That's worth way more than five dollars. <laughs> for our deluxe Patreon listeners, you're for, welcome. For a list of the war dead. <laughs> oh God. So Simone de Beauvoir was born in Paris in 1908. Um, she went to a strict Catholic school. Um, and as comes- opposed to those lax Catholics, <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, but the, Ma- the Montessori <laughs> Catholic schools. <laughs> Sorry, I spent all yesterday grading, so I just want to go necessary. Yeah, yeah, all of that. <laughs> unpack. Yeah. So anyway, the point was though is that to begin with, she was. Um, she really bought into the whole Catholic thing. Um, <laughs> Some and, people do. It's weird. <laughs> and um, she she went so far as wanting to become a nun uh, when she was very young. Um, but then I guess like World War One happened because obviously when you consider when she's growing up and sort of in the you know aftermath of World War One, she declared that kind of the tragedies of the world around her 
uh, were just too much for her to believe in a benevolent God. And so she declared herself an atheist. This was at the age of 14. Mm. I thought it was going to be a lot more straightforward than that. And that a lot of nuns had to serve as nurses during World War One, And she was like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, I gotta save myself here. <laughs> no, thank um, you. So she was also uh, extremely smart, um, and uh, you know, also she had you know a reputation for being a, very attractive as she was growing up. So, mm-hmm. um, you know what's so annoying about this though is that if she'd been the ugly one and he'd been the hot one, we would not be here talking about this right now. Yeah, like you know, they they seem equally intelligent, but it's the fact that he's you know considered ugly and she's considered attractive. That allows the power dynamic of the mm-hmm. genders to balance out. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's that's we've got a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like that is relevant, but girl, we're at mile one. <laughs> so, um, Simone de Beauvoir did not go to Nomasu. Did um, they admit women back then? No, because they didn't admit women back then. Um, but she she studied at the Sorbonne instead. But she also wanted to take the uh, aggregation. Mm-hmm. So she, in order to be able to sit the aggregation, she used to go to Normal Soup to sit in on classes where she wasn't technically enrolled, but she wanted to take that thing anyway. She took the aggregation the year that Jean Paul Sartre was doing the reset for the aggregation. Okay. So she was 21 years old, he was 24 years old at this time. This was his reset, this is her first time. He came top of the class. Like after having failed one year, okay. he then qualifies top of the class. Well, you don't want to be the JFK who the junior who just keeps failing the bar right. over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah. I mean, but you, you basically when you come top of the class for aggregation, you're it's basically being anointed as you're the smartest person in France. That's yeah. it. You're you are capital G genius. Yeah, yeah. Um she came second. Um what a me cute. Yeah. Ugh, kill me. <laughs> <laughs> but admit it, you'd watch the shit out of this rom-com. You would. You would. I would. <laughs> and if they play tennis, give them an Oscar. <laughs> now, they had actually, they'd obviously met one another while she'd been sitting in on the classes for the aggregation. You must have so noticed her. They already knew each other. They were already busy. I don't know if I want to say falling in love. Well, he was falling in love with her to, mm-hmm. uh, to a degree. Um, she was actually engaged at that point, I believe, to another philosopher whose name I haven't written down. But regardless, 21, th- th- everybody's a philosopher at this stage yeah. in France and in this particular <laughs> Simone, subject. don't go chasing philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> Stick to the lit professors and, and the, the sociologists <laughs> that you're used to. <laughs> Were they impressed with each other's intelligence while they were in class together, do you know? They definitely had an immediate connection with one another. However, um, it was not love at first sight, at mm-hmm. least from uh, Simone's point of view. Um, because, But um, as would happen uh, later with many of his other conquests, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, he persisted. Um, oh, God. Another Jerry. Yeah. Another Jerry. <laughs> Last week's episode on American Paris. Sartre was a, a real Jerry. <laughs> what a mulligan. Um, so, yeah. Um, de Beauvoir had to get over the uh, the physical impression that uh, Sartre made at this stage. He was um, about five feet tall, 
uh, he dressed in oversized clothes. Sorry, I'm, I'm quoting from a New York. New, sorry, I'm quoting from a New Yorker article here. Okay. Uh, Sartre was about five feet tall. He dressed in oversized clothes with no sense of fashion. His skin and teeth suggested an indifference to hygiene. Ah! Wow! He had the kind of aggressive male ugliness that can be charismatic, and he wisely refrained from disguising it. What? <laughs> He simply they would never say that about a woman. <laughs> she had the kind of aggressive female right. ugliness. She should have died at <laughs> <Yeah>. this point. <laughs> he simply ignored his body. Uh, he was also smart, generous, agreeable, ambitious, ardent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the important word. <laughs> and very funny. Uh, he liked to drink and talk all night, and so did she. Uh, so they pretty quickly, um, you know, Sartre won the Beauvoir over, as I say, he's 24, she's 21. Um, and the relationship is going pretty well, and Sartre gets confronted by uh, Simone de Beauvoir's father um, and said, like, you know, you should really marry Simone at this stage. However, there were practical reasons against that because she didn't have a dowry at the time, which it's the second time this has come up. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't think that one would need it like this late into the, that's the thing. 20th I think, century. I think I've misunderstood how long we've kept the idea of dowries. Feels... Or at least how long the French did. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, you, I mean, certainly the kind of... Like, that's what I meant by we, we upper, the French. The upper middle class French. Of which, as I said, her family were definitely very much apart, but they'd lost a lot of money during World War One. Right. Hence the fact they didn't have a dowry. And unlike Leslie Caron, uh, last week, she's too old to become a ballerina. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Poor Simone. <laughs> However, uh, Simone de Beauvoir was also against marriage on a kind of on a philosophical level. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know. What other level is there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, she said that marriage is a very alienating institution, both for men and women. Okay. Um, and she also said of her relationship to Sartre, on the other side of, um, you know, that marriage would bring very much to it, she said that the comradeship that welded our lives together made a superfluous mockery of any other bond we might have forged for ourselves. Wow. I kind of love that quote, actually. I really do. I love that idea of comradeship. It just feels like on the, like, kind of politically saying someone's your comrade, but also in terms of friendship, there's something really lovely about that. And there's also a kind of like a, a nice echo here of Eloise and Abelard as well. Oh, yeah. She's That's true. Similar things that Eloise was saying in relation to not getting married to Abelard. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, spoiler, it ends a lot better for Sartre than it did for Abelard. <laughs> <laughs> kind um, of would have to. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine if it was worse. <laughs> so what Jean-Paul, what he proposes to uh, um, Simone de Beauvoir instead of marriage is a sole partnership. I'm in. I'm obsessed. Is it, uh, what, like an LLC? <laughs> Do they exchange their souls? Lim limited liability corporation. <laughs> <laughs> As he put it, what we have is an essential love, but it is a good idea for us also to experience contingent love affairs. Oh, so he's a fuckboy. I see. <laughs> right. Simone was talking about something really important here, and he was like, yeah, and I think we should definitely fuck other people, right? Because we're soul companions. 
doesn't mean S-O-L-E, just means S-O-U-L, you know what I mean? <laughs> Loosen up a little bit. So really, it's, it's, it's a properly kind of original, like an OG um, polyamorous relationship that they're uh, setting up there, that they're allowed to, um, they're in a relationship, they're each, each other's like primary partner. Mm -hmm. However, they're very much permitted to have affairs with other people. And it's mutually decided. It's mutually decided. Okay. Um, how, uh, with the caveat um, that they must tell each other all of the details of any other affairs that they are having. Wow, this also feels... All of the details? It feels very cruel and Or like as much as somebody, like as much as the other person asks or... Um, it, they definitely went on to tell each other all of the details. Mm. Um, I don't know if this was in the original contract. I but, imagine they didn't think it's bourgeois or <laughs> Right, of course not. But I can totally see the two of them being so obsessed with authenticity and the truth, capital T. Again, these are philosophers that they'd be like, yeah. tell me everything. Again, this, to me, this is like very sexy in theory. In practice, I'm sharpening my knife. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and get ready for those sharp knives to go into somewhere soft. <laughs> <laughs> to go all Abelard on him. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't go well. I mean, it goes well for the two of them, but look, look sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. But one of the things about the pact is, is that it meant that um, in terms of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's lovers, uh, who a lot of the time were also uh, Simone de Beauvoir's lovers because she was bisexual, mm -hmm. um, but that she would not only get to know them, I mean, yeah, she, she, she would become very close friends with a lot of the people who he ended up you know, having affairs with who were not her. Okay. I can only see myself doing that in a very fake way. <laughs> yeah. Again. Um, <laughs> Too many segues. Too many segues. <laughs> now, it's true. So to begin with, um, she was, Simone was um, upset to discover that she was actually quite jealous about a lot of this arrangement. Oh, baby. Because she was like, I'm above this. I'm enlightened. Yeah, she felt that she ought to be. And um, and yet she was still jealous when Sartre was obviously sleeping with other people on the right. side. Um, you can be super smart, but you're still a human being. Mm. A note to all of us, but especially me, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, but don't worry. I mean, you can be super smart, but you're still a human being. But if you're going out with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, he's got a word of advice for you, oh. which is um, <laughs> that jealousy, like all passions, is an enemy of freedom. <laughs> <laughs> it controls you. Wait, I think so. I went to school with him. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely went to school with someone who read Jean-Paul Sartre. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so he, he said to Simone, uh, your jealousy controls you and you should be controlling it. Oh my God, he would be an influencer now. He would actually have like some sort of weird like um, pyramid scheme. Uh, from that advice, I think this is a good moment to jump sort of back a little bit and talk about like some of the philosophies uh, that uh, Jean-Paul is uh, putting forward and how they came to pass, how he developed those philosophies. Okay, can I ask one question? And I promise it's relevant. Is he really setting the tone for their relationship and what they what they like and what they don't like? Because it's just interesting that you said his philosophies, not their philosophies, not his and her philosophies. I think that's interesting. I wouldn't, I, I, I don't know enough. Okay, those. sorry. I, I would also hazard a guess that I think that other people wouldn't necessarily know enough. Okay. Like I'm sure that's like one of the debates as to who's really setting the tone right. of these philosophies. Okay. Certainly the philosophies uh they they are kind of primarily attached to him. Mm -hmm. Um and then her work kind of came out of them and spiraled and became other things. Right. But okay. I 
more specific than that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so um, talking about how he developed some of his philosophies and what they were, uh, like de Beauvoir, after the aggregation, uh, Sartre worked as a teacher around France for a bit. And then uh, Jean-Paul Sartre went to work as a kind of cultural ambassador in Berlin. Uh, oh, that's great. What a great job. Where are those jobs listed? Yeah, well, if he worked for the Institut Francais. I don't know, like, um, mm. you know, but as far as I understood it, effectively what he was doing was like being a philosopher in in Berlin and kind of being like God. amazing French philosophy and uh, giving talks to probably a very small look it didn't work out very well yeah, it was in the 1930s oh <laughs> yeah yeah so, yeah yeah bad job Jean-Paul <laughs> <laughs> then moving on a bit um it, it, while he was there he was obviously being uh, he was connecting with certain German philosophies. Uh, World War II comes along. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre serves as a uh, meteorologist in the French army. Excuse me. I don't understand how that happened. That's how you know they didn't know what meteorology was. They're like, I mean, Jean-Paul, do you want to just do it? Oh, uh, weather forecasting worked at that time. It was like, how well can you interpret Leibniz? And it's like, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> They just didn't have the science. They were like, how do you feel the weather's going to be? <laughs> well, I think that when Aquinas said, <laughs> it's going to be stormy on Thursday. Uh, um, in, the, in the role as meteorologist in the French army, he got taken prisoner by the Germans. Wow. Um, wow. Um, and so he spends the sort of first couple of years of the war in a prisoner of war camp. Wow, um, I didn't realize that. Yeah, don't worry, he doesn't have a bad time. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> he writes his He does keep just going, I just do the weather, I just do the weather. <laughs> uh, he writes his first play in that, that time, uh, which they obviously put on in the Prisoner of War camp. It's this so, is yeah. hilarious. <laughs> I'm imagining very much like a um, Great Escape type Prisoner of War camp. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, um, at yeah. that stage. He writes, it's, it's about... Um, it's about the nativity of Christ. Of course it is. Perfect uh, timing. Apparently, it's also a, a subtle um, message that you should resist because it's something about them resisting the Romans within the nativity. Right, um, right. It's a great work of art. It's a great piece of resistance. Duh. Um, and he also reads Heidegger uh, for the first time. Aw, good for him for using the time wisely. <laughs> it's a great time. I mean, he's, it, is that a wise use of time? <laughs> Have you read Heidegger? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's discovering new writers, <laughs> discovering new ideas. He's sat. I mean, like, he's almost as complicated as Heidegger um, and, you know, nearly as problematic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he comes back to Paris in 1941, where him and de Beauvoir are kind of like tangentially involved in the resistance movement. I think it's to do with like publishing and magazines. They're never like directly doing anything particularly dangerous for them, but they're definitely not like, you know, uh, what's it, collaborating um, mm -hmm. in any direct way. So right. And they're always talking about resistance at the very least. Yeah, they really do sound like philosophers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's written some great things about Paris under the uh, occupation, including the famous statement, um, never were we freer than under the German occupation. <laughs> oh, 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 JP! <laughs> it's, a, it's a great... But it's a great way to open a controversial column. That's it, yeah. Because he did. He he went on like we had lost our rights, and first of all, our right to speak. They insulted us to our faces. They deported us on mass. 
And because of all this, we were free. And I understand we can't unpack just this one piece for the rest of this episode, but I am like, I'm not really sure I get it. <laughs> if I was a student, I'd be like, yeah, professor, I don't, I, I feel like everything you're saying is like the opposite of free. Yeah, don't worry. We're going to get to that. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. Unpack, unpack. We get too many segues. So sorry. Just all, it's very fascinating. <laughs> he also, in this time during the war, during the occupation of Paris, wrote what his, uh, his most famous book would be, which is uh, Being in Nothingness. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I say most famous book. It's sort of the one which is like, certainly in terms of philosophy as opposed to any of his novels or plays is the one that he's most famous for. Um, it's the one that I used to have a copy of, which was, it had a very cool cover. It was mm-hmm. like an entirely black cover and it just had being in nothingness written in a kind of tiny white strip. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's something I want on my shelf. Um, but and, then I, and what happened to it? <laughs> he's holding it right now. You can't see it. <laughs> We've never it seen, turned into the nothingness oh, part. <laughs> We've never mentioned it, but every episode so far, Chris has been holding this book, and we've always wondered. Well, no, in seriousness, I consulted it for this podcast. Mm. Um, I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to get a bit of a, a handle on his uh, his philosophies mm-hmm. again, so I could understand, you know, as you said, like what that statement about, you know, people in Paris being most free under the occupation. Mm-hmm. So I read the first line. By reducing the existence to the series of appearances that manifested, modern thought has has made considerable progress. The aim was to eliminate the number of troublesome dualisms from philosophy and to replace them with the monism of the phenomenon. Has it succeeded? Sorry, is that still part of the quote? Are you asking us? That's the first paragraph. Oh. I mean, so anyway, yeah, I read that and I was like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it isn't as bad as Derrida. It's not even as bad as Levi Strauss at some points. Like, uh, Except the parallels that I don't quite understand any of these. including <laughs> this one paragraph. <laughs> so anyway, the point is, is that I read that and I thought, no, I can't put up with 600 more pages of this shit. <laughs> it's 600 pages? <laughs> I mean, 600 might be a conservative estimate. Oh, um, so he focused much more on the being part. <laughs> <laughs> I went to ChatGPT. Yeah. <laughs> and I asked ChatGPT, uh, explain to me Sartre's philosophy very simply. Okay. So here we go. This is. Uh, oh, I'm so excited. ChatGPT. <laughs> um, <clears throat> existentialism. Sartre was an existentialist, <laughs> which means he believed that people are free to choose their own path in life. But. This freedom can be scary because it comes with the responsibility to make meaningful choices. So far, I'm totally agreeing with him. Yeah. Freedom and responsibility. He emphasized that we are responsible for our own actions and choices, and our existence comes before any predefined purpose or meaning. We must create our own meaning in life. So I like it, but I can feel that it's going to get into terrible. Like I, you know what I mean? Like I can see the red flags, the pink Anybody flags. Anybody who's ever heard the word existentialist used in conversation <laughs> as a modifier <laughs> knows that it isn't quite uh, capturing the connotations. And also any person who's like, and so every human being is solely responsible for everything in their lives. It's like, oh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're definitely getting into the troublesome, the murky waters yeah. of his relationship with Simone de Beauvoir. Okay. But I carry on from uh, what Chatty has been saying. <laughs> uh, bad faith. Sartre criticized people who pretend they don't have choices or that they must follow societal norms. He called this bad faith and urged individuals to be honest with themselves and confront their freedom. Oh, God. Okay. 
Authenticity. This is the last one. Uh, Living authentically means making choices that reflect your true self rather than conforming to the expectations of others or society. Again, one of those things that sounds great and it's much easier to do when you have all the other comforts available. You know what I mean? You can be like, I don't feel like doing this today. And there won't be that many horrible repercussions. (laughs) You know what I feel like doing? Fucking her. (laughs) (laughs) Now, literally, Stephanie into something here. Ding, 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 ding. Fortunately for all of us as well, because some of those might have gone faster, uh, gone by a little bit quickly. ChatGPT has also consolidated them all into a handy uh, <laughs> single sentence takeaway. I'm obsessed with chatting. <laughs> In simple terms, Sartre's philosophy is all about embracing our freedom, taking responsibilities for our choices, and living genuinely true to ourselves. Which, again, on the surface sounds great, but <laughs> it just. Oh. Now, Simone de Beauvoir was on board with a lot of those philosophies too, mm-hmm. um, which, as you've already uh, kind of you know, led yourselves to, means that in their relationship together, which is already this sort of like pact of soul spiritualness, <laughs> they did a lot of questionable things together. Mm-hmm. Um, so leaping ahead a bit, like to kind of illustrate some of the ways in which his philosophy worked in action. Here is a conversation between Sartre and de Beauvoir that she published in 1981, just after his death. Um, Ooh, already so many doubtful. (laughs) (laughs) This is a conversation they had in, I think, the mid-70s. You know when you're recalling conversations from five years ago, how accurate they are. Should I be recording my conversations? (laughs) I I think they were probably recording their conversations. They knew at this stage that they were... uh, I I, I don't think that this is putting either of them in a great light. Okay, let's hear it. Yep, all right. De Beauvoir. Were you ever attracted by an ugly woman? Sartre. Truly and wholly ugly? No, never. De Beauvoir. It could even be said that all the women you were fond of were either distinctly pretty or at least very attractive and full of charm. (laughs) Yes, in our relations, I liked a woman to be pretty because it was a way of developing my sensibility. These were irrational values. Sensibility is a euphemism. (laughs) (laughs) Developing is a euphemism as well. (laughs) I think that these are loosely translated. <laughs> so yes, these were irrational values, beauty, charm, and so on, or rational if you like, since you can provide an interpretation, a rational explanation. But when you love a person's charm, you love something that is irrational, even though ideas and concepts do explain charm at a more intense degree. What? Um. Anyway, I mean, it's kind of astounding they found anybody to fuck either of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, really what I've gotten there is that she's like, so you only fuck hot people. And he's like, basically, yeah. And you could say that's irrational or rational. What I say is I fuck hot people. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That, that, that's the whole conversation. I just I just chat GPT for that. Yeah. For you. You're all so welcome. <laughs> we don't need AI. <laughs> um, so um, as far as is understood, the two of them fairly soon stopped sleeping with one another. Like relatively really? early on in their relationship, they stopped sleeping with one another. Wow. They were, I mean, they were still um, great friends in a kind of constant correspondence, but they were mainly just having affairs with other people. But they were still, were they still following like the sole partner rules of tell me everything about every one of your oh, affairs? Absolutely. 
Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. We're getting into dangerous liaisons territory. Um, <laughs> Let me sit back <laughs> up. <laughs> Uh, but before we get there, I think it's important. So we're entering. Uh, I, I mean, we're talking about the whole scope of, scope of their relationship. But let's say right now, I'm talking about the kind of like the post-war scene, which is sort of what they're most famous for, which is like hanging out in the cafe, um, uh, cafe fleur, the De Magot, and they're bringing a whole new kind of like intellectual and artistic world around them, including like jazz musicians, <laughs> Jerry Mulligan from American. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Introducing know. Juliette Greco and Miles Davis. Exactly. Yeah. Like, um, Being I'm, in that. Uh-huh. I'm sure anybody who was in Paris at that time who we have heard of would have somehow found their way into the orbit of the Domego right. set. And either been accepted or made fun of mercilessly and never to be seen again in the Domego set. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think it's obviously like you like this idea of them sitting there. I mean, maybe you like this idea. I don't know. Make, there's a picturesque idea that they're all sitting there in this cafe having these highly intellectual conversations yeah. right um the truth was i mean i'm sure there were plenty of intellectual conversations going on but apparently Sartre didn't particularly like intellectual conversations with uh other people he he preferred gossip basically wow <laughs> honestly who does that remind me of <laughs> Actually, I'm kind of back on Daddy's best friend. I'm back, I'm back on Sox's side now. I'm like kind of in again. He said that this is why he preferred the company of women. He said it in a far more intellectual way. And I'm back out. It's really, it's hot. It's like Katy Perry said it. You're hot and you're cold. <laughs> you're yes or you're no. I, I just, I don't know. And I, I, I want to put a pin in that as an idea because I think that there's stuff to do with uh, Simone de Beauvoir's philosophies and writings that I want to get into later, which that kind of gender determinism, which seems quite um, kind of anti that idea. Mm-hmm. Sartre has said that women are good at gossip, basically, and right. like men only want to talk about ideas. Right. Um, but anyway, um, talking about their entourage that they had around them, all of these, you know, jazz musicians, writers, artists, the hangers on, uh, they used to refer to them as the family. Um, like Charles Manson? <laughs> I mean, not a million miles away, I don't think, because Ooh. one of the things that they liked to do was uh, have sex with members of the family. <laughs> okay, I, I just wasn't sure. I, w- I wasn't sure which activity we are going to choose. <laughs> we do know NAF and the pod's uh, official stance on incest. Yes. Which is anti. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, of the official stances dot, dot, dot. we have taken. <laughs> <laughs> but they really used to play around the idea of um, incest with their various conquests. Like they would kind of think of uh, these people as their, you know, their daughters in their kind of hangers on and, uh, and oh then spend time seducing them and, you know, talking about how they were going to sort of seduce them. Um <laughs> While playing like really explicitly like parental roles in their lives, like, do you want to go get ice cream? And I mean, I don't know, probably not ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to braid your hair into pigtails and go see ponies? <laughs> oh, God. It was a very common feature of these sort of like menage a trois style affairs that they had. Okay. It was the kind of the, the language of incest. But I think, I think it was sort of like play acting among themselves. Right. And that was but like, really re- particular to this group. Uh, to, or was that like a general like so French intellectual they re- thing? They would re- no, it was particular to um, Sartre and de Beauvoir. Uh, they would refer to their entourage as their family, and then a lot of the people who they ended up having their affairs with would come from the family. Okay. Um, wow. And then okay. They continued using you know filial 
etc language to describe the people who they were having affairs with but the argument was is that it was just a sort of a way of like stretching taboos to create a more erotically charged environment Mm -hmm. um so yeah their customary method uh was to adopt a very young woman as a protege uh they'd take her to movies and cafes and things like that they'd uh, help with her education. They'd support her financially. And this is Beauvoir and Saps or the group in general? Uh, no, this is Beauvoir and Saps. Okay, specifically okay. Them. okay. They would pick a particular young woman and then gradually seduce her through, uh, you know, means of education, basically flexing their power in front of them. Um, wow. So usually it would be uh, de Beauvoir, who, as I say, was a bisexual, who would go out and do the sort of like initial sort of like seducing of the young woman and then kind of bring this young woman into Jean-Paul Sartre's orbit and then he would try and seduce them. I was going to say, like, so, I mean, there's, don't get me, there's so much about this that I find deeply disturbing and chilling, but somehow the thing that's pissing me off the most right now is just how fucking lazy he is. Like, she has to do so much more work than he does. She has right. to do the legwork, she has to do the recruitment, she has to do the initial seduction. She brings them to his lair and he's like, all right. Now I'll try to like I mean, raise my eyebrows at them and flirt a little. <laughs> my like I I do think that the like the biggest taboo at this time probably would have been like a same sex relationship. So maybe she has to like to make sure that they can both you know, have relations with this woman. Right. And I, like she might have to be the one to go out there first because she's like the harder sell to see if they're open to that. Oh, I was do you thinking, see what I'm saying? I do. I was I was kind of thinking that she's almost like the more harmless kind of envoy, right? Like if he starts the seduction, yeah. then it maybe it maybe they're afraid that it'll be like too obviously predatory. Whereas if it's a woman, I think that's kind of like a like a I mean uh, slightly hetero like you, you know what i'm saying like yeah like, i see what you mean yeah. it, like if you're coming at it from a queer perspective it's like but the, I mean, then that young, tension is but i meant for the young woman in question right like even if whether or not they're queer or not yeah is there maybe a bit more especially at the time would they feel a bit more safe with an older woman as opposed to an older man regardless of their sexual preference i see what you're saying yeah i was thinking in terms of like emotionally you know right, uh, vulnerability right. but mm-hmm. of course your emotional vulnerability but of course you're talking about socially yeah, yeah. and just security right yeah like, just feeling like there's something different about your male professor coming up to you yeah, and talking right. to you outside of class versus your female professor and even if you are attracted to them because of the taboo you're kind of thinking like well we're kind of safe like we're not going to do anything yeah. in public or anything like that yeah i say also it wasn't always like it wasn't an immediately done deal either when uh, sort of Simone de Beauvoir might have been having an affair with one of her students mm-hmm. and introduced this student to Sartre. Um, he didn't immediately start, start sleeping with them, if at I, all. I so. did just see a picture of him, so yeah. I, I, I do understand. Yeah. And her. There, there are disparate levels of attractiveness. There are a yeah. few famous ones. I'm going to talk about one of them, which was... Um, a student of uh, de Beauvoir is called Olga Kosakovich, um, who was the 17-year-old oh, daughter yeah. of a Russian emigre uh, who Beauvoir was teaching. This was actually before the 1950s, so this was in 1933 who Beauvoir taught then. Wow, okay. Um, so she struck up a friendship, and in uh, 1935, she proposed that Olga should come and stay with Sartre in Paris. Um, and... Beauvoir then begins an affair with Olga when they're in Paris together. Um, Sartre becomes, in fact, so it's it's not 
quite as calculated as I might have made it seem. Okay. Such of them became infatuated with Olga, and then he spent the next two years trying to seduce her. Um, oh, wow. To no success. I really did think that they were, like, tag-teaming. I thought I thought this was kind of like a, this is what we do when we find someone attractive. Like, we just, like, I, I did think it was a lot more calculated. Yeah, I think I'm being, I'm sort of telling the story almost in a kind of, like, past the point. This is a sort of a pattern which repeated itself again and right. again. Right. And it might have become kind of de rigueur. I realize I've never actually said those words before. De rigueur, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, but at the beginning it wasn't so calculated. He wasn't sending her out to go and seduce someone for him. But they fell into the pattern. This is a okay. pattern which, which happened. And this was kind I of mean, like you, you also wonder, like, if it's something that it's just, like, there's an attractive to him to somebody that she has seduced you know like yeah if it's that fact that makes it attractive rather than like you're going to get somebody and then i will have her but more like it's the fact that you've been with like each other yeah that's attractive and i'm also really curious about with simone and jean paul as well like how mutual the decision was to not have sex with each other anymore like was there a weird gainsmanship of trying to win back the other person from either perspective and via these younger threesome or did they i mean i don't know about them trying to have threesomes okay like that so i believe not but um you know the 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 description that i had was that they were kind of almost having sex with each other by proxy by yeah how fun for the proxy yeah (laughs) yeah sounds so unproblematic so fun yeah yeah yeah. and this is sort of like psychological readings of what the situation was right uh in this situation with this uh russian emigre um uh olga her last name uh kosakovich um he ended up he could he didn't seduce her he ended up meeting her sister wanda who was just as beautiful as olga uh, (laughs) but she's unfortunately named wanda Wanda. (laughs) she has an inferiority (laughs) complex (laughs) Um, spent another two years trying to seduce wanda wow eventually he succeeded okay (laughs) okay um well i hope it was worth it two years this is four this, years total. Yeah, this is written by de Beauvoir about the um, after he after Sartre had successfully seduced Wanda. Uh-huh. Uh, the day of his triumph, he left her lying in bed, all pure and tragic, declaring herself tired and having um, himself tired and having hated me for a good forty-five minutes, um, in order to rush out to a cafe and write to her with the news about the fact that he had uh, just succeeded in... Um, it is dangerous liaison. Yeah. I mean, it really does sound more like a kink than anything else. At this yeah, point. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, he's not interested in intellectual conversation, but it is clearly Simone is his number one conversant, right? Like, he needs her to know all that's happening in his life and vice versa. Um, is there any better gossip than gossip about your own life? And also, when you talk to, when you're two intellectuals talking to each other, doesn't all gossip become intellectual conversation at a certain mm-hmm. point? Mm-hmm. Like, where's the line? And you can write it off on your taxes. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I could write all of this off on the bank. When you're a public intellectual, everything becomes uh, tax deductible. That's why people do it. <laughs> um, Sartre, he, I mean, it gets worse though. He had, uh, Sartre had a particular proclivity for virgins. Uh, uh, and uh, people who he called drowning women. Oh, my God. uh, Women whose lives were damaged or insecure. Oh, so not like the hold you underwater and... No, no, no. Like a kind of... Like a JFK uh, thing. Metaphorical drowning woman. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, God, how many men have we met who are like this? 
he's really open about it. Is that better? <laughs> you know, I, this part of his philosophy. I don't know if you were uh, paying attention. Oh, right. Actually, Love, truth, and beauty. Own, authenticity. <laughs> if you own up to the bad shit that you're doing. That's and true. Take control of it, then you're good. It's fine. Yeah. That's also, the women should be taking control of their own drowning. That's yeah. That's true. <laughs> um, you know how when you're drowning and it's your fault. I do. Yeah. God, that's what I always think when I see someone drown. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh bad decision. Where's your life guard? <laughs> well, I really don't swim. <laughs> By the time he's, he's when he's reached. Uh, Goggle much? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when he's reached intellectual superstardom, when, you know, a lot of women want to sleep with him because he's so famous. Because, you know, after the war, uh, you know, after the 1950s, he's public, he's basically the highest profile public intellectual in the world at this stage. And he's definitely leveraging that to get more women to sleep of with Of course him. he is. Um, and so he used to set his set women up in um, an apartment, apartments within 10 minutes of his own place. Because um, <laughs> he's also lazy. <laughs> <laughs> every week he used to make what he would call his medical rounds. Um, oh, vom it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. One of his mistresses described to, to give him. injections. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what this means. One of his mistresses described him as a clock in a refrigerator. A clock. Oh, is it because he's cold. keeping them so young, but also making them no. very aware of them? It's because he's cold and like regular. Wow. It's just, it, you can like. like uh... Oh. I didn't feel, I didn't like that. <laughs> oh, I didn't enjoy that at all. I wasn't doing anything to nap. <laughs> How do you medium? I was tapping the coffee table. Rachel. And then he <laughs> also, if I did that to somebody and then they said, I didn't feel anything, oh, kill me. <laughs> the podcast would just be done. Like we would just never talk about anything again. We wouldn't talk to each other. Yeah. So if, it, if it's not obvious by now, he took a lot of satisfaction in the act of conquest, but like not very much at all in the actual act of having sex with anyone. Oh, um, just. I bet he had some great masturbations, though. <laughs> <laughs> masturbations? <laughs> What's the plural? <laughs> Masturbation? Uh, nevertheless, the buzzword did say of him that like, he was still, you know, he really did, you know, put his all into these conquests even when he was a superstar like de beauvoir wrote of him just as a waiter plays the role of a waiter Sartre had played to perfection the role of a man in love um wow i can't really tell if simone is too much of an apologist or if she's the shadiest bitch i've ever heard of <laughs> like that sentence i'm like is that damning with faint praise or are you just damning him i don't know <laughs> the praise is faint it's very faint it's very it's it's very dangerous liaisons though right yeah the whole thing and it makes it's even more dangerous liaisons when you consider that most of what we know about this relationship and all of the things that they thought about each other's lovers and the experiences with lovers and what they were going to do um was revealed in their letters that they sent to one another um wow so uh de beauvoir actually published Sartre's letters to her um just after Sartre's <laughs> death <laughs> <And she> was, <laughs> i 
I got. I don't know how she got out of this. But went, now my responses were. Uh, <laughs> 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 were <laughs> I take it back. Good job. Shadiest <laughs> bitch I've ever heard. Oh no, no, my answers were never as good as his letters, so I couldn't possibly publish them. What a genius! Am she, I right? She just gives the equivalent of the thumbs up emoji to Ian Watson. <laughs> Reply all prayer hands. <laughs> That's like a couple times there's an eggplant just to keep him going. But nevertheless, her letters to him did get published then after her death. Well, well what's good for the goose? Oh, by Sartre's ghost. By Sartre's ghost, yes, he came down. I mean, which was a bit of a, you know, kick in the teeth for him because being an existential. Yeah, that's true. Because, like, wait, it was being or nothingness, not both. <laughs> <laughs> he's so mad at her that he's willing to invalidate his own philosophy. Wow. <laughs> that's called bitter. I don't think he would have been uh, mad at her for doing what she did. Like, I mean, he's... I think he'd have been really turned on by it. Like, that's really yeah, what I actually, get Yeah, actually, yes. Yeah. Okay, so now, it's a little bit of a... Let's all take a moment. Yeah, because we've let's collect ourselves. About, we've been talking about Jean-Paul Sartre. We've been talking about Simone de Beauvoir. I've mentioned some of uh, his philosophy, obviously. But uh, she is also a massively famous philosopher and thinker. So let's just dial back a moment and kind of think about her philosophy yes um and you know and, and then talk about kind of like where this relationship came from out of her philosophy um because of course she's an incredibly famous feminist so mm -hmm. you know in some ways how is she allowing this cycle of abuse to happen um she's helping them become women because they're not born women but they've become them through so Am I the only one who read De Beauvoir? Well, yeah. So, I, so yeah. So <laughs> I've only read her memoir and her fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, obviously, she shared some of uh, Sartre's philosophies, like about freedom and sort of like basically owning your actions. I suppose mm -hmm. like, there is no morality apart from the things that you are supposed to own for yourself. I don't. That's that's me bastardizing it. But, not, <laughs> but I did. I, so I, I went to ChatGPT again, uh, and I asked. Uh, I, I asked him uh, to uh, sum up Simone de Beauvoir's most famous work, mm -hmm. *The Second Sex*. I cannot believe you just tried to gender chatty with a binary. I know. I was. <laughs> I was like, should we let? The, I'm glad you didn't though. They then, please. <laughs> Thank you. God. <clears throat> In simple terms. The book provides a comprehensive analysis of the historical, social, and cultural factors that have led to the subordination and oppression of women. De Beauvoir argues that women have been treated as the other throughout history, defined in relation to men and often reduced to objectified or secondary roles. She advocates for women to break free from these limitations, assert their autonomy, and strive for equality with men. The book is a call to action for women to claim their independence and define their own identities rather than being defined by society's expectations. So effectively, you know, she's arguing for an equality of the sexes. Right. I'm kind of, I'm, because on the one hand, Simone de Beauvoir is so distinct from Jean-Paul Sartre, right? Like, yes, of course, they were in this like long standing relationship, but it's not like her reputation, her intellect is not, I could be wrong, but to me, it's not subsumed by his, right? They are two distinct people for me. It's all the other women <laughs> that she did not think that for, but that does make me think a lot about, to go back to Dangerous Liaison, like the Marquise, right? I, you need to ask for my consent, but these other women, oh, 
please do what you need to do, right? Like have fun. Pull, pull the ladder up behind you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think there's also this uh, this sense of like the influence, uh, like the mutual influences here are really primarily or almost exclusively coming out in the like recommendations, you know, in terms of like what that means and the implications for actual life. Mm. Because in terms of what she's saying about gender construction, this is really revolutionary. Yes. And mm. completely separate from anything he's theorizing. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's like, she's not, she's by no means, and I don't, and of course, I don't think any of us were saying this, of course, but just to be clear, she's not copying him, right? Like she's not, she's not just a smart person who's kind of, you know, parroting back what he says. She is on her own intellectual path and her own intellectual journey. Um, I mean, her fiction is far better than his, et cetera. Like there's, they have different strengths and talents as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this, I, I think for both of them, this big weakness is like this focus on the individual in the sense that, right. you know, cause it's like, who is that individual in your eyes? Mm-hmm. And like, what situation are they in? And right. And sometimes instead of saying individual, just say me. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> that's what you really, <laughs> just be honest. <laughs> I should get to do what I want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But this is a definite, I mean, I think. Matthew. Not philosophy, then. No. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> then you're a politician. <laughs> it's just a wish list. <laughs> so, but I think, Nath, you, you, you touched on this here as well as to kind of like, um, you know, her being, you know, as, as good a writer, uh, you know, writing better books than he did and so on and so forth. And there's definitely a question which I think can't you can't help but ask, like, and people have asked it over and over, like, which one of them was smarter, ultimately? Right. Um, and there have definitely been a lot of people who have talked about this in the in the past as well. Um, and there really seems to be a growing consensus. And I mean, smartness is obviously a pretty difficult concept to mm-hmm. quantify, but nevertheless. For some of us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of those people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep all the laughter so everyone knows how delighted we are by ourselves. <laughs> so, so yeah. So there's a growing consensus that it will it was to Beauvoir, mm-hmm. um, and you know we can go back to the uh, aggregation in 1929 when they took that when they were literally competing against one another. And as you pointed out, uh, then like yeah, she she was a woman at that time, and like you know that that made it even harder for her to be you know considered the top of the class mm-hmm. not only that but there was even so a huge amount of debate around which one of them ought to have been considered mm-hmm. top of the class mm-hmm. uh furthermore Sartre is resetting the damn thing so right exactly that, like you know not only has he got uh he's seen it before but also like you know maybe they're feeling a sort of a certain amount of sympathy for him as well um, and in fact, that although he won, uh, the general consensus was that she was the real philosopher of the two, even among the aggregation committee at the time. Right. Um, because I think one failure and number one is more like is at least equal to her getting second on her first try. Right. Like th- those have to be the same, basically, if not hers being a little bit higher than his. I mean, I think in the end, like it comes down to what do you value more? Like what what do you value more in determining intelligence? Like hard work or uh, like a more inborn right. talent? And then the third thing, right, is innovation of ideas. 
because you know, like it kind of. I doubt she passed the aggregation so hot. So oh, high sorry, sorry. I thought you were talking about their general intellectual. Oh no. Oh, I, I see what you mean for the. the I, guess, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think she's passing it by being like no, gender no. is a construction. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I thought you meant like how we judge, how we assess both of them as intellectuals, yeah. men on the committee. Yeah. <laughs> but this comes back to an almost final question as to you know, in this relationship and the equality between the two of them and all the horrible things that uh, you know they were both doing. Like, now, was there a degree that she was the person who was manipulating Sartre mm. uh, in order to, like, in terms of the spiritual pact, um, in terms of, you know, allowing him to have these affairs, almost kind of finding women for him to, you know, uh, try and seduce mm -hmm. in order that she could continue being in a relationship with him? um like was was there a certain degree to which like she actually wouldn't have gone for any of these kind of things and would have just loved Sartre for who he was um but inversion though I feel like yeah. that is slightly gendered in the idea that like oh women must want relationships what if she's the one who's going okay I just want to go out and fuck all these women and he's like I'm very excited by the idea of fucking somebody that you've just fucked. And, yeah. and like, and she's the one who wants the freedom and he wants the like attachment somehow through her. I'm not sure that's entirely supported by the text that we've had so far, but just to, but the question that. exists, right. Yeah. And connected to that too. I also wonder how um, it seems to me also very a gendered reading to, to assume that somehow she is at greater fault because I think that there's also an expectation that a woman should have, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, like big air quotes, like softer emotions or kind of be feel more kinship with the other women around her. Whereas mine from my, re from what I remember about learning about Simone de Beauvoir is that that was not her particular weakness, right? Like she was not so much like, oh, all women are my friends and I want to make sure that we all get the same footing. She did, she was there. The quality of women was definitely her philosophy, but in terms of her actual practice, that was like her personal life, that wasn't always the case. And Because the philosophy and, was also centered around individuals exactly. and not communities. But then the other thing is like, also, should it be, is it fair to expect that from her just because she's a woman? And I think there is maybe, a, you know, like in the sense that also like whenever parents, uh, to take a more contemporary example, whenever parents fuck up with their kids, I feel like women always get yeah. much harsher public treatment, but also legal treatment often too, right? Because there's a sense of like, it's unnatural for a woman to not be maternal, to not be nurturing. Whereas for men, it's like, it's a it's a bonus if they're nurturing and nice, right? Yeah. yeah. I keep thinking of the example of Jeffrey Epstein, actually, and yeah. the, what's her name? Who was his like right. procurer? Not Giselle. Um, uh, yeah. Giselaine. Yeah. Gis yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or, or not Giselle, <laughs> a simpler way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, her, you know, but this idea of like, you know, in this monstrous situation, you know, who's the real monster and it's like, yeah, okay. And like, th this is a separate thing in which, you know, right. there's like, uh, you know, money and power come into play, right. you know, as well. But the fact that uh, she's been so in the public eye and mm -hmm. like, I do have very strong feelings about her sure. role in that. Uh how much does it matter who's more at fault in in either of these cases, right? Like, yeah, what ha what happened was really shitty for the people who were taken advantage of. Does, I mean, I guess in terms of a public reckoning, it's interesting to talk about this, but at the end of the day, both of them hurt people, right? Like both of them were shitty in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think this is all so true. And there's like literally 
I couldn't believe how much information there was about these two people, how insanely complicated their lives was. Like, mm -hmm. I'm literally just scratching the surface with what we've talked about here. There's there's loads more about obviously the multiple books that they've both written, uh, the people who they were friends with, mm -hmm. uh, the political causes that they got involved with, which we just don't have time to talk about. Because can I say briefly too, there are of course very famous couples like, uh, famous artist couples, famous writer couples, etc. But I think for me, they're the they're they're the only couple that I can think of where both people are famous for being brilliant. Period. Yes. Right. Like they are both to have two. Yeah. I'm just I'm just thinking in terms of power couples. Like there is, I can totally understand right why there's so much literature about them. It also cannot be overstated in France how valued philosophy is as an academic subject. Yes, exactly. Like, I think in the States, it's considered kind of like a weak, vague, you right. know, like a hippy-dippy kind of thing. You're smart, but what use do you serve? Yeah, exactly. Like very purposeless. I'm not even sure the smart is always mentioned. Mm -hmm. It's like, I think thinking about like, oh, you sit around and just talk about ideas right. all, all day, like right. very vague. Uh, whereas in France, it's like, it's considered the you hardest. You sit around and talk about ideas all day. Yeah. Day. <laughs> it is considered the hardest academic discipline, I think, by far, certainly right. within the humanities and social sciences, mm -hmm. and uh, really privileged, definitely. Uh, which definitely has given the basis to a lot of uh, French theoretical work. Mm -hmm. So the only way that I can really wrap up their story is, I mean, with saying that there's a lot more story to tell is that... One day they both died. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, they were together, you know, they were together um, in their spirit, uh, their uh, soul partnership for 51 years, uh, which continued right up until uh, Sartre's death in 1980. Um, and... Simone de Beauvoir died six years after in 1986. Well, I had to be born. So, yeah. <laughs> one public intellectual had to go for the next one to take her place. And I, you know, I take that, uh, Mama Simone, I really do take that responsibility <laughs> um, very seriously. It's, uh, it's a heavy burden to share. Um, I, I think I carried off like pretty lightly and deftly. <laughs> Am I the Gene Kelly of intellectualism? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> People talk about my mind, but it's being like really hot. Yeah, these are nice too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Two loaves, baby. <laughs> Two loaves, no waiting. And now it's time for our favorite <laughs> segment, Mary Fuck Kill. Chris, who's on the docket this week? Once again, I didn't want to go too deep with the characters in the story. Um, there, as I also said, there was a lot of stuff about their own personal philosophies which i didn't really get into um particularly jean-paul sartre i mentioned existentialism as one of his philosophies he was also very big into marxism um he tried to consolidate marxism and existentialism um I oh no you're gonna make us pick between philosophies among philosophies this is naps kink <laughs> i don't i don't really know how he managed to you know consolidate existentialism and marxism but let's say he... Right, the individual and the collective. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, similarly, um, Simone de Beauvoir, she obviously was an existentialist and also a feminist. So I thought for our Marry, Fuck, Kill this week, okay. we would have, your choices are existentialism, Marxism, and feminism. Ooh. Okay, so easy. Kill existentialism, fuck that shit. Uh, but not actually right. kill it. Um 
fuck Marxism because I feel like every young liberal does at some point yeah, in their life. Uh, yeah. Until you're like, it doesn't actually work in practice. But uh, pro- the progressive ideals mm-hmm. uh, keep a fight the good fight. And marry feminism um, in whatever kind of partnership feels right for you, ladies. Yes. No, I, d- I feel real weird about that last part. And we- wait, and marry feminism uh, just because it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, do you have an answer? Yeah, I do. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I kind of agonized over it a little bit. Um, I'm going to be marrying feminism. Mm-hmm as well because i think it's the right thing to do is the, the he'd also like to leave this apartment alive imagine <laughs> <laughs> chris being like so kill feminism <laughs> i thought he might do it just to provoke a reaction but yeah. <laughs> rachel continues to think this is a two-person podcast <laughs> the apartment next to mine is empty <laughs> it's a good place for bodies <laughs> Marry feminism. <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> you got so close to that mic. Um, no nuance here. <laughs> I mean, also that's something. Whatever. I could I could say that's something I genuinely believe, but it just sounds like I'm pushing so He does his <laughs> his wife is really an actual feminist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think Alice's husband is also a feminist. Oh sorry, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I thought you were here. I didn't see her there. After the other two, I decided that I would um fuck existentialism i'm so nervous about this um i think that uh it's it's just sexier uh basically but it's a listen as as someone's trying to get out of a dark tunnel it could take you dark places (laughs) it it could do Mm -hmm. but i'm willing to risk those dark places um is nobody reading the subtext here you guys would make terrible (laughs) i love this Discussing it in the morning after with a coffee and a cigarette at the Domingo, where, where I'm paying through the nose because of fucking capitalism, which has got the better of all of this because I have killed Marxism. <gasps> oh, but that was a nice little denouement. Huh? I like that. Um, I mean, I'm definitely going to marry feminism. Um, because me too, I think it's good. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, woohoo! Like a hundred percent, I'm pro feminism. Yeah, um, and I know it's a daring take, but I'm. And also, I do think I, I do think a, a, a staggering number of people do not know what feminism is. That's it. That's really what it is. I like, you know, how many times have we heard someone say, "I'm not a feminist because I think men and women should be equal." I I think you should go. <laughs> You're a goddamn moron. Um, so marrying feminism, yeah, I'm I'm fucking Marxism. Done it once before. I'll do it again. Um, not mad about that. And um, yeah, fuck existentialism. Absolutely the fuck by, not. By which you mean kill it. Sorry, kill fuck. <laughs> so my new categories from now is the dead corpse of Marxism existentialism. I'm not playing Mary fuck kill anymore. I'm playing Mary fuck fuck kill. <laughs> You're saying I'm just going to be on the terrace of the Demago on my own, having my post-coital cigarette. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, have fun fucking existentialism, baby. You feel good? No. No, you don't. <laughs> Thank God he can go home to feminism that night. Ooh, at least that's restorative. <laughs> but here's the question. Will feminism take you back? <laughs> and that was Mary fucking kill. <laughs>